Um, good morning for those who don't know me. I'm Silas, associate pastor here. And um, this morning we are continuing our series on parables through the book of Luke. Parables through the book of Luke. So as a refresher, all series long, uh, we've looked at parables through Luke in a way that has asked us to pay close attention to how they're designed to read us. You know, we, you hear me say this all the time. As we read the Bible, we're also meant to be read by the Bible, right? If the Bible is active and living, if it's breathing, if it's moving, if it's sharper than a two-edged sword, it works on us by reading our lives. So it doesn't just tell us something. It doesn't just describe something to us. It also invites us through prescription. It calls us towards something. Or better yet, it calls us to someone, to God, to our neighbor. And so these sacred texts that we read, they do this for us. Uh, And particularly when it comes to parables, these stories encourage us to find ourselves in the characters, in the setting, in the plot, so that we might be formed towards Christ-likeness in response to our sacred texts. And so as we've been journeying, we've hit some of the classics, some of the most famous parables that are there. We started in the Old Testament because parables aren't just with Jesus. They're a form that are all throughout the Bible. So we started there just to invite us in And in that parable that David and uh, the prophet Nathan experience, it all comes down to, you are the man. It causes David to have this realization that he's done something wrong. The story reads him, and he repents, he reacts, he responds. So we started there. And then we have also gone through other parables a couple weeks ago, we did the, uh, the Good Samaritan parable. And in that one, we engaged it in a variety of ways. We looked at it through the lens, this time, of art, of Rembrandt. We looked at three Rembrandt paintings and said, if these represent the Good Samaritan from the eyes of Rembrandt, then how do they invite us to reflect on the text in new ways? And so if you'd like to see that one, we have other ones. We did the parable of the two debtors. We also did the parable of the banquet feast last week when we were camping or having our our community feast kind of day. All of those are available online. You can see them there and recap there. I know as we travel, sometimes we miss things in transition, but those are available for you. Um, And regardless, we're glad you're here today. All series, we've approached parables with the concept of inversion in mind. Now, as stories, parables, they resonate with us deeply because they can be twisted and looked at from different angles. So every time we take a story and we invert it, it is an invitation to something. Every inversion of a parable is an invitation to transformation every inversion. So what do we mean by by that? We mean every character. If we see ourselves resonating with one or the other, the story's going to read differently. Every time we take the story and we turn it over and we find another detail, it reads our lives differently. Every inversion of a parable is an invitation to transformation. 
And so whenever we read this parable, the question we should be asking is, what is the parable inviting us into? What is it forming us towards? And as we said earlier, not just what are we being invited into, but who in this story is inviting us towards other? Who are we invited to? Join me for prayer as we learn together this morning, and then we'll dive into our text. God, we are grateful for the gift of this day, for this time to pause in our week. We're grateful for your presence that opens us up to discover the presence of other. We're grateful for the ways that you speak to us through your spoken word. We pray that this spoken word would be faithful to your written word and that it would lead us to the living word, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Be near to us in our hearing, and may we discern your spirits. We pray this with Christ by the Spirit. Everyone said, amen. So again, two weeks ago, we looked at the parable of the Good Samaritan, our inversion and invitation. All of that was through the lens of Rembrandt. The, the art that we looked at, they all highlight different aspects of the text that we might not have known or might not have noticed when we just read the parable. So the first story that we, or the first uh, inversion we looked at, it starts with the first painting that Rembrandt does. It's the oldest one of the Good Samaritan, and it starts at the end of the story, which is curious, right? It paints a scene of the story that we might not have ever conceptualized. And then the second story we looked at, it accentuates how the direction of travel in the text goes one direction and another. So what do we mean by that? The in the story, if you remember it, you know, there's a man who's left on the side of the road, and then people travel and they bypass him, right? The priest walks past him, the Levite walks past him, and then the Samaritan, he walks by and he stops, and he helps the man. If you pay close attention to the direction people are traveling, the Samaritan is running towards Jerusalem, towards the holy city, and everyone else in the story, which way are they going? They're coming down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And there's a sense in the story and in the art that's represented that this direction matters. Are you walking towards the holy city and bringing people to God? Or is the direction you're moving taking you away from the holy city in a way that makes you bypass those on the road? It's a question that comes about and is highlighted by the art. The third painting we looked at, it had this dog sitting in the front of the picture. That we're like, what do we do with this? And that reminds us that in the midst of this parable, the midst of this story that we can spiritualize, there's this dog sitting right in the foreground. And he highlights the commonality of the story. Right? It, the parables, sometimes they lose their reality, their grittiness, that they intersect with our lives. But when you see a dog doing his business, it just breaks that box for us a little bit. It makes us remember, oh yeah, like this is life. Stuff happens, right? We're here. To reiterate the words of Linda Naiman, who is an artist, she talks about how art provides an opportunity for kaleidoscopic thinking. Each time we shift the lens of our perceptions, we gain new perspectives, and there's new opportunities to look at. And so 
With this in mind, I'm going to read our passage for us this morning. And then I want you to pay attention to the different retelling of this same parable through another artist's world, through their perception, through their eyes. And they're very different from Rembrandt. You know, pay attention to the details of the text as I read them, and then see what comes to life as we listen to some art. So our passage today is from Luke 15, verses 11 through 32. This is actually the longest parable that Jesus gives. It's the one with the most discourse, and it's the longest parable. And we will be reading from the New Revised Standard Version, Updated Edition, which is a long acronym. But it it was just revised, and it's a pretty good translation. Uh, Let's dive in. Verse 1. Then Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the wealth that will belong to me. So he, the father, divided his assets between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant region, and there he squandered his wealth in dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that region, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that region, who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough and to spare? But here I am, dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before earth, or before you, and, oh, sorry about that. Uh, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off and went to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. And get the fatted calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now, his elder son was in the field, and as he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the slaves and asked, what was going on? He replied, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has got got him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him. But he answered his father, listen, for all these years, I have been working like a slave for you, and I have never disobeyed your command, yet you have never given me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came back, who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. 
Then the father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and he was found. If we would, let's play that video. Let's get it. So we were with the Rembrandts earlier, and you know it felt like the lowest hanging fruit to do this. His one of his most fainting, one of his most famous paintings is the Prodigal Son. But we already did that. So we did the Rolling Stones instead. Who this song, right, is their version. This is called the Prodigal Son, and in many ways, in their body of music, it's a return to their roots. So they kind of had this like psychedelic rock phase two albums back, and then this one is called The Beggar's Banquet. The one that was their psychedelic rock one was called The Satanic Majesty. So this really is like some kind of way of recovering itself, right? 
And in many ways, this is their story. They released this album. They're like, we want to rediscover our roots. Now, like, not worship music per se, right? But it does cause us to reflect a little bit on the ways that the story itself might speak to us. Now, as we read it, and as you've imagined the story typically, have you noticed the emphasis on the famine in the land being the thing that causes the sun to come back? I mean, show of hands. Does, is, that a, is that a common thread for you? That's great, right? Famine happens. Now, as famine happens, that's starting to give us clues about our parable itself. Have you noticed before that when Jesus says, I'm going to tell a parable, what's the context that he tells this parable in? If you look in your Bibles, there's a parable before this of the lost coin. If you go above this, there's a parable of the lost sheep. And right before that, the Pharisees say amongst themselves, as Jesus is having fellowship, as he's eating, he says, they, or they say, who is this guy who eats with sinners? Right? That's the thing that's said. And then it says, notice this in the text, Jesus tells them this parable. And then there's three. Now, oftentimes we break it down into three separate parables. But that's an addition into the text. Right? That's an editorial choice that we make to make the text digestible, for lack of a better word. This is where that context, the emphasis of famine, the context of table and feast, all of this starts to change a little bit of how the text is read. Again, subtitles, they frame out our standard readings of this passage. And so, you know, as we look at the subtitles that are common in some of the most uh, common English translations we have, we have four translations that show up, right? We have the idea of the prodigal son. We have the parable of the lost son. This is the King James English Standard, NIV. On the scale of different translations, this is the way that we typically engage it. In our translation, I love that the story itself is highlighted with a little bit of a different subtitle. The subtitle on the translation we read, it reads, a parable of the prodigal and his brother. And so immediately it starts to highlight how this story isn't just about one against the other. It's about perhaps double lostness. And double lostness in the scope and in the frame of famine and feast. What it means to be invited into a party. What it means to join with others in party. Again, notice that in Luke 15, verses 1 through 3, the beginning of our parable begins with Jesus just saying, I'm going to tell you one parable, one story. How might we read these three parables together that we typically talk about as one story? We have, to begin with, a story about a sheep who gets lost in a field. And Jesus goes after, leaves the 99, gets the one. And then 
The next story is about a coin lost in a house, never leaves the house. And still that coin is found, right? Goes and finds the coin and then throws a party, celebrates with it. And then we have a story about brothers who are lost. One goes to the field, to the far country, and is lost. The other never leaves the father's house, but is lost. You're seeing how the parable read together starts to fold in on itself. Why should we care about this? It changes the thrust of what we learn from the sons and their father in this story. Typically, when we read this parable, we'll focus on the reckless love of the father. So we might highlight the detail of the father runs. Typically, there's a one reading of ancient Near Eastern culture that says, like, men, patriarchs of families, they don't run in that way. But the text says, when he sees the son a long way off, he runs to him and gets to him. So there's a subversion of cultural norms that's happening. That's one way to read this. We focus on the reckless love of God that is chasing you, that will get to you, that will see you from a distance and find you. Then we'll also sometimes read this parable as a parable of repentance, right? So when the son comes to himself, when he has that realization, when he hits rock bottom, it says he comes to his senses. Or the King James, he came to himself, right? He made himself whole. He realized that there was uh, brokenness in his life. So we can preach this parable as a parable of repentance, right? We invert it. What's it say? We can also preach it as a parable of self-discovery, right? Someone has to go and experience the world before they can then know that God is present in their life no matter where they're at, both in the far country and at home. That will preach. That's a good word. We can also preach it as a parable that pits hedonism versus moralism, right? You have the younger son who kind of does whatever he wants to do. Licentious living is what the King James will say. And then you have the elder brother, and he's in the, the house. And in the house, he uh, responds to his father and says, listen, I've obeyed every command you have said. Everything you've said. And I've never even complained about it. I haven't asked even for a young goat. And then you've killed the calf. A goat typically was one-tenth the cost and the expense of a calf. So he's not even saying, I want what you're throwing for the younger brother. I just want a sliver of the pie. Just give me a small, a small, a small thing for my friends. Moralism. He's caught up in this transactional relationship with his father. And his father is just like, listen, you have always been a son to me. You have everything. It's good to celebrate. These are different trajectories, inversions of the parable that we can look at and preach and discover that God is present in all these ways. This story does tell us about the reckless love of God. It does speak about repentance. It does tell about self-discovery as a journey. It talks about the dangers of uh, hedonistic living and then also strict moralism that keeps you away from God. It does all of that. This is the complexity of the parable. All of these inversions, they invite us to different realizations about God, our world, our families, 
and ourselves. All of this is present. But in addition to these reads, in addition to all of these ways that this parable speaks to us, let's also be asking the most basic question that Jesus is pitching back to the the Pharisees at this time. Remember, all of these stories are response to an accusation and a grumbling that he is eating with the wrong people. His table fellowship is with the wrong folk. And so in one way, I think the story and this parable, more than anything else, asks us this question. Who is welcome at your table? Who is welcome at your table? We already noted that famine is the thing that causes the younger brother to decide to come home. In other words, he's hungry. And when he hits a crisis, the younger wants to become a servant. Meanwhile, the older brother, he never had to leave the house of his father in order to feel like he was a servant. And for both of these men, the text reveals to us that they, through how they've engaged each other, how they've engaged their father, They've created separation, and they don't even know it. The parable highlights Christ's radical insistence that even your enemy can be your brother. Notice, they call God Father over and over. You can't call God Father without God revealing to us who our siblings are. And this is how the parable starts to get scandalous. Because remember, it starts at the table. It starts with the feast. It starts in the context of saying, these people you're eating with, they're not your kin. You shouldn't eat with them. Jesus, if you're a holy prophet, how can you eat with these folk? Remember in that time, who you ate with and what you ate that was a claim about community. It was not just sharing food with each other. Sharing a meal with each other also means sharing space and time, personhood, sharing life with each other. This is what they're doing. And so Jesus, in response to this, tells this long, long thing that ends at a feast. And the most heartbreaking thing about this parable is that at the end, when it's left open-ended, the elder brother, he's outside, the father has gone to plead with him, is what your English translation might say. It's actually that Greek word, the same root as comfort. He's gone out to comfort. So in John, when you have the idea of the paraclete, the comforter has come, that language, it's the same word. Right? The father is going to comfort his son and plead with him to come into the party, to come in and feast, to come in and share table fellowship, not just with the son, but with the whole community. You wouldn't kill a full calf just for your small family. This is for the whole community. And he doesn't go in. At least we don't see him go in. 
the heartbreaking part of this story, it opens up to us and says, would you go in? If you have felt slighted, overlooked, if life has felt unfair, would you still go in to celebrate the return of your brother, the return of your sister? That's one thing this parable asks us. If you see yourself in the seat of the older and you've been overlooked, you haven't been counted, can you still celebrate? Can you go in? But the other part is also this, and this, I think, for church folk is a little more challenging. If you've been like the younger brother, you've gone out, you've received grace, will you not go out of your party to bring your brother back in? Now, this is the question. We can focus on the older brother not going in, but the younger brother, why doesn't he go back out? He hasn't even seen his brother yet. He made it home. Notice in the text, it says, the son was out working and he only knows there's a party happening because he hears the music. That means the family themselves have had time to slaughter a calf. They've had time to hire musicians. They've had time to set a feast, invite the whole town, bring them in, start the party, and no one bothered to tell the older brother. We're talking about who's lost and who's overlooked. The story is a story that invites the older brother to go into the feast. It also is a story that says, if you are in the feast, if you have received the grace, if you have been found, if the Father has gone to you and is doing this for you, will you not bring your kin in? This is how the parable reads us. Where do you see yourself? Younger or older? This is how that story invites us, in a way, to look. And I love that the parable is open-ended because we don't get the resolution. In many ways, this parable is meant for us to write the ending with our lives, with our lived reality. And so we think about this. In that Good Samaritan parable, right, it's scandalous because of who's present in it. You have uh, like uh, opposite people on a national scale. Right? You have someone who is seen to be Jewish being rescued by your enemy, right? And they're being bypassed by their priest and their religious leaders. And so in that reading of the story, right, like the question isn't go and do good things, or the moral of the story isn't go and just do good things. It's what do you do when the person you've been told is going to hate you, treat you better than your own tribe, than your religious leaders? What do you do with that? And how does that reframe who is my neighbor? That's the question that spurs on the Good Samaritan parable. In this one, in this parable, it's not so much contrasting national oppositions. In this parable, it's talking about on a more base level, in your interpersonal day-to-day -day relationships, who is kin to you? 
Because just as we can be sucked into the separation nationally of this and that, separated, there's also that recognition that sometimes that's not even that far away. The people who aren't in our feast are much closer to home. So a heavy question for us, right? Like, where, where do you find yourself as you read these parables? This isn't just a parable about being lost and then being found. It's what do you do when you have been found? And what are you invited into as God continually, with reckless love, finds us from a far way off, runs to us from a far way off, sets a party and a table, prepares the table in front of us from a far way off, will we not invite others to the feast? The whole of the scriptures is about feast. The first command in Genesis is to take and eat. The last command in Revelation is drink this Everything in between, as a mentor has said, is the feast. So as we look at this parable that invites us to dinner, who's going to come to our table? We'll pause and reflect on this question in just a moment. But as we do, we also want to be mindful that spirituality isn't just something that lives up in our hearts and in our head, it's something that calls us to be embodied. So my challenge for us this week as we let this parable read us and the different ways we've looked at it is when we think about our lives, how might we offer feast, hospitality, meal, comfort, something to others that we might not see as our brother? We all have blind spots. We all have biases. It also can be hard. So we also want to be sure to engage this with a sense of wisdom, right? With a sense of, uh, with a sense of charity to self in our act of charity to other. So don't miss here what the ask is. But my challenge for us this week is how might we enact hospitality towards someone that we might not want to, that we might not see as our brother. Again, the way we see others is, it's dynamic. It's never static, right? We're always engaging people in different ways. We get rubbed in wrong ways. My challenge for us is how do we do that? How do we embody what this parable is actually pressing us into? How do we leave the feast and bring others in? This is our challenge. And so as we think about this, we're going to pause and take about 30 seconds, reflect on who and how that might happen in your life this week. And then I'll pray a blessing over us before we continue on in worship. Let's pause and reflect on that question for a moment.
God, I, I confess that oftentimes we can separate ourselves from others for a variety of reasons. And yet at the same time as I recognize through this story that you are gracious and you are so loving and you invite us into life with you that has its moments of celebration and we reflect and we think about how we might participate in your act of running towards the margins, running towards our neighbor, even running towards our enemy and redeeming in ways that help us recognize you are present in the image that every human bears. And so as we think about the divides that are present in our life and as we think about an embodied faith, not a faith that just lives in our head, but something that touches our head, our hearts, and our hands, we pray that you would give us opportunities this week to enact this parable in the way that it reads us? Would you form us into hospitable people? May we be nourishing presence in our communities and in the lives of our families? Would you speak to us and through us and shape us towards faithfulness as we reflect on your word preached this week? Be near to us and give us patience and strength as we take up this challenge. We pray this with Christ by your spirit. Everyone said, amen.